Very good. All right. Well, we're going to be in the book of Nahum tonight. So take, go to Matthew and turn left six books. Okay? I use the index sometimes, so you might as well, you know, don't feel afraid to do that, all right? Go to Matthew, turn toward Genesis, six books later, you're there, all right? The book of Nahum. Now, the context for Nahum, as I mentioned last week, as a matter of fact, in the message, is Nahum is also, like Jonah, is about Nineveh. It's written about a hundred years after Jonah, okay? And, you know, Jonah really would have liked this, okay? As I mentioned this morning in the message, you know, Jonah, when he walked outside about, you know, about a day's journey outside the city and sat down to watch what was going to happen, I told you that he was sitting there going, okay, let's just see if they can pull this off. Let, let's just see how long we buy the last. Let's just see how long they go to church. Let's just see how long they quit drinking. Let's see how long they do that. Let's just, let's just see how long this thing, let's see how real this deal is. And with the context of, if, if they fail, they can go back to God saying, I see God, I told you. Well, Jonah didn't live to see this, okay? But Nineveh, once again, just turned radically against God. They were a pagan society. Revival was over, and they went back against God, and God sent Nahum to preach that same message about destruction, and this time Nineveh says, I don't think so. Y'all go ahead and destroy us. And, of course, God utterly destroyed um, Nineveh. Jonah, I promise you up in heaven, did not go to the Father and say, Hey, God, hey God, remember Nineveh, I told you. Because, see, then he had the big picture. If we would get the big picture, we'd be good. That's a good place for an amen. If we would get the big picture, we would really be just okay. All right? So what I want to do is tonight, something I love to do, is we're going to take one verse out of Nineveh, and then we're going to jump, use it as an outline, and we're going to jump to places in the Bible that talks about that verse in Nineveh. I love, it's one of the things I love to do as a pastor. Um, I love, I, I would much rather see what the Word of God says about the Word of God than what Dwayne says about the Word of God. It's just, it's just a better deal, all right? Now, let me tell you my, my story with Nahum 1-7. That's where we're going. Nahum 1-7. In 1977, and by the way, that would make me 23 years old and Judy 19. Can you even fathom that? I mean, can you imagine me with hair? I mean, like even brown hair, all right? We were young people, and we'd only been married a year, and we went to Germany. And, um, of course, when we got there, we were active in church. We were both believers. And so we found a church called Simbach Bible Church and went to Simbach Bible Church in Simbach, Germany. And our pastor at that time was a guy named Scott Piercy, Percy. And uh, his wife's name was Kathy. I, I, that slipped my mind. I remembered it this week when we were talking about Nahum 1-7. And, and Scott and Kathy. And there's a couple of things I remember about Scott. One, he was about as tall as me. That made me feel good. Okay? And he had the skinniest hands in the world. I mean, I don't have big hands. I could, like, envelop his hands. You know? And he had this incredible, great smile. He was just a really nice guy. And as a young guy, I really kind of looked up to him. You know? Uh, he was probably 30, maybe, at the time. 31. I was 23. And just really lit up Scott. He drove this really cool red Scirocco. I mean, remember the Scirocco is a Volkswagen thing, and it was incredibly fast. And in Germany, there were no speed limits. He let me bar it one time, and we on the interstate on the Autobahn and just blew it away, man, just flat out, probably doing like 140 miles an hour. Just incredible. So I really liked Scott a whole lot. And, um, and Scott's life verse was Nahum 1-7. And here we are... 30 zillion years later, I still remember this. And, and the bad part is, as a young, and this was hard for me, I, I was trying to think if I was a deacon then or not. If I wasn't a deacon, I'd just been made a deacon not too long after this. But, but we'd been there probably about eight or nine months, maybe a year. And um, 
and Scott's wife had an affair. And it was somebody in the church. She got a young airman, and they were having an affair in the church. And one day she just left, and he left. The guy transferred, and she just went with him. And it all happened like in the span of a, a three days. Scott had no idea. I had no idea as his friend. The church had no idea. They just hit it so well. And it just really rattled me as a Christian and rattled um, the church even, and certainly rattled Scott. He was just devastated. And I didn't ask him that day because I wasn't you know, wise enough, but you know, the verse says this, The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in Him. And He cares for those who take refuge in Him. And what an incredible life verse for a man who just lost his wife, his marriage. And I don't know if he lost his ministry. I know he did not stay at Fembot. He went on back to America, just totally devastated. What a great life verse. And I, I want to talk tonight about those three things. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress, and he cares for those who take refuge in him. And just keep in context, imagine whatever it would look like if your world fell apart. If it was your wife having an affair, if your husband having an affair, if the doctor gave you the report, you're 40 years old, you're 70 years old as far as that goes, and he goes, you have cancer and there's nothing I can do, you um, have chest pains like Robert did, um, uh, Matt's dad, our son-in-law's dad, and all of a sudden he's having five bypasses, a guy on staff at Journey Church in, in Murray, Kentucky, all of a sudden uh, laid up now with five bypasses. Whatever it may look like, your great-granddaughter is suddenly drowned in the river, whatever it may look like, it's those times, and we'll have those times, that, that we really need to be anchored in the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in Him. Now, the Lord is good. Now, if I were to say, God is good, you would say, and I would say all the time, God is good. And you know what? And we believe that. We really do believe that. And from this perspective, standing on this stage with my life at least semi-halfway put together, that's so easy to say. But I've, what I've learned through, through 36 years of, of, of being a Christian and about 30 years of being a pastor, what I've learned is, is that from this perspective, it's really easy to say that. But when we get into the hard times, and, and there's been some pretty dark days in my life, and I know there's been some dark days in your life, it's a little harder to believe that God is good. And, and the reason why is, is that there's someone who is the accuser of the brethren, but also the accuser of God. And that, of course, is Satan. And once you're saved, now you need to get this tonight, I haven't said this in a long time, once you truly are born again, now I'm not talking about just getting baptized, I'm not talking about being a Baptist, I'm not just going to church, once I've truly been born again, once I've been saved with all my heart, with all my being, I believe this book teaches that I am eternally secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that, that Satan can do to steal my soul away. Can I have an amen there? I mean, we believe that emphatically, not because it's good teaching, not because it makes us feel good, but it's the truth. It's the truth. I think you have to twist the Word of God to make it say anything else beside that. So Satan cannot have your soul. But he can steal your confidence in God. He can steal your joy. And he loves to do that because when we lose our confidence in God, when we lose our joy, and when we lose our peace, we become ineffective for kingdom work. 
Now, what I did was tonight, again, each, each one of these points has a couple of scriptures I'd like to tag on with it. And, and the first one's going to go right to James, which is an incredible scripture. But I thought, you know what? Where did all this start? Well, Genesis 3. You go ahead and flip back in your Bibles. That's the first book of the Bible. Just keep going left until you run to the end, and you'll find Genesis chapter 3. And what we have is Satan and the first temptation here on this earth. And it's so, it's so evident how sly that he is. Well, let me read it to you. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. And you just need to write this down. If you don't have it written down somewhere in your heart, in your mind, Satan is good at what he does. Satan is good at what he does. He is one slick deceiver. He's one good, slick accuser. Okay? All right? Now, he said to the woman... Now, notice how, and again, no matter what translation you've got, New King James, King James, I've got Holman Christian Standard, New Living, whatever you've got tonight, it really says the same thing. Did God really say? And then he goes on and says, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Now, what he does is, he's cast doubt. Did God really say that? I mean, is that really what God meant? And he's trying, he's trying to get the woman to question God and to doubt what God has really said. And he's good at that. Because, you know, again, when you're in the midst of a temptation and, and you're in a bad marriage and, and your husband's abandoned you or your wife's abandoned you, you know, did God really mean... No, come on, come on, come on. Doesn't God really want you happy? Come on. Isn't, isn't it really what God is about? He wants you to be happy. And He'll take and twist things around, making it sound like that, A, God's Word says something it doesn't, or that God's just flat out lying to you. Okay? Which He pursues to do. Okay? Here's what he says. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Well, no, no, no. We may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it nor touch it or you'll die. Now, once again, God said you must not eat of it. He never mentioned the touching thing. I don't know if Eve came up. You know, we're always, come on now, we're always good at adding to God's Word, aren't we? Yeah, we just, we, we fear God's word needs a little bit of help, so we like adding to it, okay? Alright? So, so, you know, you know, the word says you should not eat it. I don't know if she came up with it, or her nice husband came up and said, Eve needs a little help spiritually, so we'll just, yeah, I know Eve has a propensity to this, so, honey, honey, now God, here's what God said. You know, God said don't eat it and don't touch it. God didn't say that, okay? He said don't eat of the tree. So, she's been taught some falseness there and adding to the word of God. And then, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must eat it or touch it or you'll die. No, he says, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. He's saying, listen, listen, listen. God's lying to you. God is lying to you. And this is what he does in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your crisis, in the midst of your life, or when you're about to jump off into some sin, okay, because it looks good. I mean, it looks good. The grass is green on the side of the fence. He'll say, God really didn't say that. That's not what God... Listen, you won't die. God's Word is a lie. Now, you need to remember that. And He's good at it. He'll whisper in your ear. And right now, sitting here on a Sunday night, my Sunday night crowd, and Sunday night preaching, you'd say, well, I never fall for that. But you know what? We do all the time. We do all the time. It may not be the big atomic bomb on an affair, but lying and gossip and bitterness and jealousy. You know, he'll, he'll help you just... Satan will help you justify your sin. He'll help you justify your sin. He'll help you justify your actions. You have a right to be bitter. You have a right to be unforgiving. You have a right to be angry. 
He'll, he'll help you justify that. He goes on and says this. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. That's why God is, listen, God is holding out on you. God is holding out on you. And I'm telling you, that's His greatest weapon in helping us, helping us, hurting us, but helping us to lose faith in God. God's holding out on you. If, now watch, watch, if God really loved you, la-da-da, la-da-da-da-da. If God really cared about you, la-da-da. You think your loved one would have died if God really cared for you? Do you think that God really cared for you that you wouldn't have got the job or you would have got the job? You, don't you think, don't you think, come on, come on, come on. Do you really, don't you really think if God cared for you, you would have got that loan so you could have bought that new car? I mean, I thought you deserved a new car. See, that's what he does. Okay? And that's where it all started. In fact, it started in the beginning. Amen? It started in the beginning. And it's been going on over and over and over and over again. So what we need to do then with that background knowledge is now go to James chapter 1. And this is really a good passage of Scripture. I reference it very regularly in my teaching of the Word of God. Okay? Because I think it's very important that we understand something. God is good. Your bottom line has got to be God is good. When you're, when you're older and you're fixing to cross Jordan, God is good. And when you're young and your future is before you and you're trying to decide what to do and who to marry, God is good. You've got to have that be your bottom line. And in James chapter 1, it's a really good scripture. It says this. A man who endures trials. Now notice, by the way, notice, James, the half-brother of Jesus, okay, James immediately says, we're going to go through trials. Again, this false teaching that Christians don't suffer is exactly what I just said, is a false teaching, is a lie. When a man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he'll receive the crown. Nothing's wasted with God. You heard that this morning. You heard that lesson this morning. God doesn't waste anything. When we go through a trial and through testing and through suffering, there's a reward, there's a purpose, there's a lesson to be learned. Okay? He goes and says this. No one... Oh, let me back. I'm sorry. A man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one... Would you repeat with me? No one. No, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am, be tempted. I am being tempted by God. No one. You should never find in your vocabulary that you're saying, God is tempting me to sin. And he tells you why. He goes and says this, For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself, knows that word, he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted, here's how it happens, when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires, his own lust. Then if desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. That's the process. It's our own lust, okay? And lust turns into sin, and sin turns into death. All right, now watch this. Don't be deceived, my dearly beloved brother. Don't be, don't be conned into believing that God is out to get you in the sense of tempting you. Don't be deceived into believing that God is holding out on you. Don't be tempted to believe that God is not good. Because, verse 17, and if you don't have this verse in your brain, as far as the reference or the memorization of it or translation of it, you need to do it. Every generous act. Now, I've got the King James memorized. Every good and perfect gift. Okay? 
Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, and with Him there's no variation or shadow cast by turning. In other words, there's no wavering with God. Write it down. Take it to the bank. God is good. Everything that comes down from the Father is good. Even, even when it's a plant, even when it's a worm, even when it's a scorching hot wind. Amen? God, say it with me, just say it with me. God is good. And all the time, God is good. And honestly, anchor your heart in that. Anchor your heart in that. So Nahum says, the Lord is good. And we say, amen. Then we go to this. He's a stronghold in a day of distress. He's a stronghold. He's a fortress. He's a refuge in a day of distress. When difficult times, not only is He good, one way that He is good, He provides a stronghold for us. That's why we can face the cancers and the deaths and the tragedies of life with confidence is because we have a God who gives us a stronghold to do that if we're wise enough to recognize it. Now, my scripture here are two. One is Psalm 46, and, and I use this all the time in funerals. I do because it's so comforting and so true and so powerful. It says this in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. He is a place where we can go to and hide, and He is our source of strength. He's a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Oh, I love the fact. I mean this, guys. You've got a human enough pastor where I just get a little bit carnal, and, and the next day during a quiet time, me and God have a talk. And you know what? I never get a busy signal. I never, I've never heard God say, I'm done with you. You know, frankly, you know, there's, I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, there, you know, men have a nothing box, and we also, men and women, have an I'm done with you box. In other words, you've offended me, you've hurt me so bad, I'm just ready to put you in my I'm done with you box. Okay? God does not have an I'm done with you box. Come on now. God does not have an I'm done with you box. He is our strength, our refuge, a helper in times of trouble. And then he says this in verse 10. Stop your fight. Stop your fight. Be still. Stop your fighting. And know that I am God, and, and may I add, and I'm good. I'm exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. Verse 11, Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. stronghold. As you journey through life, I'm looking at some faces tonight, and I see whoo, some of the stuff you all have been through. God is your stronghold. I'm glad I'm not a prophet where I could look in two weeks and see what some of us are going to go through. That would be a heavy knowledge to have. But I want to tell you this. God was your stronghold yesterday. God is your stronghold today. And, and I want you to try to get a grasp of this. God is not bound by time. God is already in my tomorrow two weeks from today. Over two Sunday nights away my God is always already there, and He's my stronghold. That's why nothing, nothing, nothing catches your God and my God by surprise. Nothing does. He is our stronghold. Now, David knew this. Now, King David was chased all around the wilderness by a guy named Saul. Okay, Saul. Now, in 2 Samuel 22, here's what it says. 
He's hiding in the cave when he says this. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The Lord is my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, the horn being the strength of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and so shall I be saved from my enemies. Does that verse sound familiar? I will call upon the Lord who is... Some of these songs have scriptural basis. And David... David was a man who knew about distress and he knew about God being a stronghold. Now, here's a freebie tonight. When you're going through a difficult time, and I, I tell people this a lot, when you're going through a difficult time, yes, anchor yourself in other portions of the Scripture, but regularly find yourself in the book of Psalms. Because Psalms, a chunk of them were written by David. David experienced heavy sin. Uh, David uh, experienced persecution. He experienced being challenged. Uh, his, all these things, uh, heartbreak. He experienced all those. And as we read the Word of God in the Psalms, it brings the comfort that a lot of us need. So find time in the book of Psalms when you're going through a difficult time. So we know that God is good and that God... And I, I almost got, but God is our stronghold, amen? God is good all the time and He is our stronghold in the day of distress. He's the place of safety. Um, if you, you, know, you all ever watch like the Discovery Channel or the Travel Channel, all those different channels, and they had the walled cities, and the people would live right outside the walls, close to the walls, and then when the, when the uh, herald blew the trumpet, they would open the gate, and the people would run inside the security of the city. That's what God is for us. When we run to the day of distress, we run into and find safety in the city. So God is good. He's our stronghold, but also He cares for those who take refuge in Him. He cares for those. I thought about John chapter 10, verse 7. Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me, all the religious people, are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. Verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Do you see that there? I love that. Do you see the freedom? If you come in the door and you're saved, there's freedom there. It's not bondage. There's freedom. He's not going in and out of God's will. There's freedom there to move about. I love that. That's the kind of shepherd that he is. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We know that Jesus cares. Why? If I was in the old building, the other building, I would point over there and go, because of that. The cross. The cross. No matter what your circumstances say, no matter what your mind tells you, no matter what your friend tells you, no matter what your family tells you, if you ever doubt that Jesus cares, just look over there and see the cross. The cross forever declares that I care and I love you. I care and I love you. 
It was on that cross that the good shepherd died for the sheep. For the sheep. He goes and says this. Again, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he, is, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters him. Now here, watch this. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Now what you've got to understand is this. In this parable, you can easily say, Jesus is the good shepherd. Who's the hireling? Satan is. Satan is. Now listen, listen to me. I'm, I can't be able to tell the church crowd this. Satan doesn't care about you. He'll promise you the moon, but he doesn't care about you. He'll, he, when he's whispering in your ear, I think you ought to be happy. I think you've got the right. I think Don't be deceived and thinking he cares. He can give a flip about you. He doesn't care. The hireling does not care. But the good shepherd demonstrated he cares by dying for you. And last time I checked, Satan ain't died for nobody. Hello? Satan ain't died for nobody. But Jesus shed His precious, precious blood. Verse 14, He says it again. I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus cares about you guys. Young folks, we're so glad to see young folks here. Jesus cares. You need to start, man, start now as a young 19, 20-year-old and anchoring your life. You know, God's my bottom line and Jesus cares. God is good, Jesus cares. You know, God is good, Jesus cares. Anchor your life in that. It will see you through the great storms of life. Over in 1 Peter, real quick, it says this. Casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. God is good. He's a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in Him. Y'all know my taste for music is very varied. I really do love the new courses, particularly they're getting more and more theologically deep. I must love the hymns. And for years and years and years, um, I know this hymn, I've sang this hymn, and I use this hymn every once in a while, especially to a lost congregation that may not understand that God really cares and loves. The verse goes like this. It's called, Does Jesus Care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for laughter, for mirth and song? As the burdens press, and the cares distress, and the way seems weary and long. I mean, does Jesus care as I go through life and I'm hurting and life is harried and confusing and harsh? And then it says this. Does Jesus care when I said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? Some of you, Marquita, you said goodbye to the dearest of yours. Rita, you said goodbye. Mary, you said goodbye. Anita, you said goodbye. And on and on it goes. When we said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me. And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it anything to him? Does he see? And the course is the answer. It says this. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. 
When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know, I'm confident, I am sure that Jesus cares. So now we'll do it one more time. God is good, and all the time, God is good. And He is a stronghold in the day of distress, and He cares for those who take refuge in Him. Would you bow your head right there? If you haven't already, would you be willing tonight to go ahead and draw your line in the sand? Would you be willing tonight to make your bottom line, God is good? I will say it now because my life is in fair weather and things are good. But I make the commitment right now between me and God that when the storm comes later, when the health turns bad or circumstances turn worse, I make the commitment that God is good. He is my bottom line. And because he's good, I will turn to him in distress knowing he'll be my refuge. He'll be my place of safety. Some of my favorite memories um, in my mind goes back to when I was probably six years old. And I don't have a whole lot of early childhood memories. I guess I'm old enough. I've got so many of them. But one night I remember I had um, the flu really bad. And it was probably about 2 o'clock in the morning. I can remember it was very early in the morning. And I felt horrible. And I remember Mom coming in and, and getting me and taking me in the living room. And though I was the big boy at 6 years old, she pulled me up to her lap. She put her arms around me and she rocked me. And somehow, that made it better. God is your stronghold. He wants to pull you into His arms holds you, and somehow, just knowing that, it makes it better. But not only that, he cares. He doesn't do it out of duty. He doesn't do it because he has to. He does it because he cares. Oh, yes, he cares. I know that he cares. But my heart is filled with grief. Long night's fury, I know that Jesus cares. This is our decision time tonight. The altar is always open. Maybe you want to come tonight. There's something burning in your heart that you'd just like to come and pray about. That would be great. Perhaps there's a decision that you've been wrestling with about trusting Christ as Savior, rededicating your life, um, church membership, being baptized, you're saved but never been baptized. You know, perhaps there's a decision that you want to nail down even tonight. I'm available, or some of our deacons will be available to pray with you uh, for that. But certainly, where you stand and where you sing tonight, nail down. God is good. He is my stronghold. He cares. God is good. He's my stronghold. He cares. God is good. He's my stronghold. And He cares. Father, for the minor prophets that we've studied over the last weeks, and we have a few more to go, may I just say thank you. May I just say thank you. Thank you, Father, for Nahum who under your leadership and inspiration wrote this small, compact verse that teaches us so much. And Father, thank you that we didn't just pull that verse from an abstract part and a minor prophet. That we can take your word and just nail it down. The themes that you are good, that you are our stronghold, and that you care. Thank you, God, for your incredible word. Lord, no matter where we are and what we're going through, 
We declare you are good. We declare you'll be our stronghold. And we declare that you care for us. I pray for our folks tonight, for me and for us, Lord, that we will nail this down tonight as we face our lives tomorrow. And Jesus, I do pray this in your name. Amen.